Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists. There's four different measurements or four different considerations for drought. There's meteorologic drought. Do we have a deficit in precipitation, whether snow or rain? There's hydrologic drought. Uh, how are our stream flows going? Uh, do we have the water level in the reservoirs? What is our water supply looking like? Then there is terrestrial drought, and that is the piece that was missing in terms of understanding the drought of 2017, the piece that we were critically looking at this summer, terrestrial drought, how much water is within the soil moisture profile. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, how scientists are solving research issues, and what tools are helping them better understand measurements across the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is Kevin Hyde, who is the manager for the Montana Mesonet, and he's here to talk to us about his work with that interesting and forward-thinking weather network. So, Kevin, thanks so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So today, as I mentioned, we wanted to talk to you about the Montana Mesonet. But first, can you tell us just a little bit about your background and then eventually how you came to be the Montana Mesonet manager? I started out uh, a kid in the woods, uh, always playing with the water and learning the natural history of the environments I grew up in back east. Um, I had a love of photography, which I then followed in college and then uh, for 15 years in career. But I, uh, I kept coming back to environmental questions and it, I wasn't content continuing with what I was doing with the camera. And I uh, came to Montana back in 1999 and went to graduate school. I started out with a degree in geography as a physical geographer, and then went on for a PhD in forestry. And in the course of doing the forestry work and my, my research, I've always been a field scientist. Uh, I, I love the desk side of it and the analysis side, but I gotta be out in the field. I, I have to see things as they're happening. I've gotta get the data. I joke up with people and we, we start talking about why we make what choices in terms of equipment and measurements and all of that. And I say, you know, I've got this funny habit of wanting to get evidence before I make a decision. And so I finished my degree uh, just to, uh, back in 2013 now, my, my last degree. And had a, a wild and pretty wonderful postdoc down in Wyoming. There I had a chance for the first time to get my hands on some pretty intricate uh, environmental measurement equipment and do some challenging work with geophysics. Came back to Montana and my advisor said, hey, I got this mesonet thing that uh, you want to do it? And I said, sure, what is it? Uh, and that was back in 2016. Um, and... Uh, been building ever since. So for the non-meteorologists, non-climatologists in our audience, can you just explain a little bit of about what a, a mesonet is, kind of its purposes, its uses? I will. I'm also going to put in the context of my perspective as a scientist is I am a hydrologist. So I care about the whole continuum and that strongly influenced how, how we've built out the mesonet. So a mesonet is a high density environmental monitoring system with emphasis on uh, meteorology, but with other variables as well. So uh, when I say high density, if you look at, if you're familiar with the National Weather Service stations, they're pretty widely spaced. With the mesonet, the idea is to pick up 
a fairly high resolution across broad landscapes of the metrics you're recording so that you can get, particularly the met, with the metrics measurements that vary quite a bit spatially. So we think about weather measurements and we think of precipitation and temperature and relative humidity and wind speed are the common first metrics we go for. Well, when you're just dealing with the above ground metrics, that's only giving you insights into the inputs into the system. Uh, and what our stations all have in common is that they are they also have soil moisture uh, arrays uh, going down to as deep as a meter. And so when we built out our high density and include soil moisture with the spatial variability of soil moisture, you need stations closer together. And so the mesonet concept has emerged really just in the last decade, the forefront of the development of the Mesonets was Oklahoma. They were the flagship, if you will. They had the vision first. It was driven by the tornado alley they were in. They had to have high density measurements. And from that, now we've got a majority, not, I'm not even sure a majority, it's a half the states now are building out these higher density networks. So you mentioned Oklahoma as the flagship down there in Tornado Alley. Montana doesn't really deal too much with tornadoes, so what, or at least as much as Oklahoma. Uh, right. So what were the, the main uh, problems then that inspired this setup of the Montana Mesonet? Well, I want to backtrack just a second. You said tornadoes. We are beginning to see tornadoes, hmm. which is just reinforcing our need to have this high-density system out there. So when we went to build out the Montana Mesonet, uh, the lead is, my, is the climatologist, my supervisor, Kelsey Genso. And the vision there was to um, really capture the spatial variability. We're a very large state, very low population density, and a high degree of spatial variability in the terrain. Uh, everything from the flattest of uh, plains to uh, some rugged mountains in, the, in western Montana. The idea was to build the network with the combined metrics of the meteorological metrics as well as the soil moisture metrics so we could get at these deeper hydrologic questions not just how much water came into the system but how deep did it go and what was the consequences of it coming out how long did it stay when did it leave and so kelsey's vision was again to create basically a hydromet where we're getting the readings that are essential for us to understand how plants grow how much water is available for plants I think that may have been one of the most important driving problems, recognizing that vegetation growth is a manifestation of all the inputs. The primary objective was support Montana agriculture and support the management of Montana's forests, and also to provide the information necessary to understand how our environments were changing under changing climate conditions, how the vegetation was changing, and all the cascade of effects of vegetation change. So... In your concern, or at least the concern for those involved with the hydrology, or at least the system there in Montana, you mentioned climate change is impacting Montana, it's impacting everywhere. We're dealing with droughts, especially mega droughts here in Western North America. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how drought then is affecting Montana and how maybe this Montana Mesonet can help mitigate some of the effects of drought? Mitigation is certainly a goal. Monitoring drought has traditionally been looking at uh, precipitation and not paying attention again to what's going on in the, below the surface. Uh, we certainly went through a rough year uh, of drought this past summer. As I was out there talking to ranchers and farmers, um, there was a lot of pain out there. 
a tremendous amount of pain, people that have been on the land for multiple generations. And I would ask him, how does this compare? They referred back to, I believe, 1982, and their memory was the last deep drought. And they said, it's his bad or worse. People were selling off cattle early. Mm -hmm. They were having to not just sell off the cattle they were going to, uh, that were raising for that season, but they started to have to sell off their, their breeding stock in many cases. We had one farmer I worked with uh, early in the season where we had just put a, a new uh, meter base station in, had a 100% loss of his crops this last year. To talk about the relationship between the measurements and the significance of those measurements to understand drought, uh, I'll go back to the flash drought of 2017. Flash drought, no one saw it coming. It wasn't anticipated. Uh, Snowpacks were reasonably normal. Melt-off occurred a little bit earlier in the season. That's something that's been happening through the West now for the last 20 years anyways. But it looked like a kind of normal, going into a normal growing season. And then it was a deep, harsh drought. There were several factors that were missed. The wind speeds picked up earlier than expected. Temperatures began to increase earlier than expected. But the metric that was strongly missed was the soil moisture measurement. That's our reserve. That's our water reservoir. And as evapotranspiration increased with increased wind and temperature, there was minimal monitoring of uh, soil moisture profiles, almost none. And in the retrospective analysis that was done, that was identified as one of the most crucial data needs. We've got to monitor the soil reservoir. And so as we built out the system, we have over 100 stations now. All of them have soil moisture profiles. And with it, we're starting to come up with high enough density where we're able to show the patterns of water deficiency in the soil throughout the state. We put this in the broader context of how it is we measure and monitor drought. There's four different measurements or four different considerations for drought. There's meteorologic drought. Do we have a deficit in precipitation, whether snow or rain? There's hydrologic drought. Uh, how are our stream flows going? Uh, do we have the water level in the reservoirs? What is our water supply looking like? Then there is terrestrial drought, and that is the piece that was missing in terms of understanding the drought of 2017, the piece that we were critically looking at this summer, terrestrial drought, how much water is within the soil moisture profile. The fourth is the social drought. How is the uh, deficit in water affecting our culture, our climate, our lifestyles? Mental health, emotional health. I saw depression <laughs> out in the field. So as we think about these four different types of drought, um, meteorologic drought, we can see it pretty quickly. We're chronically measuring it. We've been doing that as cultures for quite some time. Again, uh, hydrologic drought, you can see it, you can measure it pretty quickly. You can kind of say, well, we can look at the relationship between precipitation or snowpack and what kind of river flow. Um, and hydrologic drought changes a little bit more slowly than meteorologic drought. The drought, terrestrial drought changes can start changing fast at the surface, certainly. But as you get deeper and deeper in the soil profile, uh, your reservoir dries. And that is one of the biggest changes we're seeing now. We have the data in a long enough period of record where we're starting to have enough years of data we can look at it and go, ah, oh, yeah, that's a trend. It's not. Mm -hmm significant statistically over time, but that's a different part of the conversation. It goes to the high density network. With a high density 
monitoring network. We have uh, more frequent measurements, more spatially grouped. While our mesonet is relatively young, statistically speaking, we also have the benefit of longer term measurements from other stations that have been out there longer. Not very many of those stations, but other networks, federal networks in particular, that have been out there. And this is where artificial intelligence comes in. Conventional wisdom has been, if you don't have 25 years worth of data, you can't use the data. You can't say anything about your measurements. We abided by, frankly, 20th century statistical knowledge and practice, and uh, then, yeah, our data are, are too young to use. But this is where artificial intelligence comes in. You take those older data streams, we have a high enough density of stations now where we're coming up with really important understanding where we can say, this has been the data trend from the existing stations. We then join into that stream of data trends from the existing stations, all the other measurements we're making on our current mesonet. And then even a year's worth of data starts becoming relevant. You talked about the importance and the impact of droughts there in Montana and elsewhere, uh, not only to the environment, but also the human impact as well. Was it easy to get buy-in for this project, for this kind of setup, or to fundraise a mm -hmm. large-scaled statewide mesonet like this? Funding was the challenge. Our initial seed for doing it was a statewide uh, funding initiative from the governor's office, and our first seed money was $75,000. And that's what we started with. Colleagues over at MSU who saw what we were doing, they said, well, yeah, I can fund a couple of stations here and a couple of stations there. Um, the big change came for us when the BLM uh, wanted to work with us. And they committed to fund us to install 21 stations for them. That all of a sudden they doubled our network. It wasn't all of a sudden, but it was like, there was like, oh, you have traction. I mean, you're, you're a group. First year, we had uh, eight stations in. I doubled it to 16 at the end of the next year, then doubled it again. And then we got a partnership with the Montana Department of Ag. And serendipitously, they were monitoring their pesticide uh, monitoring wells using meter equipment. So they were fully compatible and they wanted to top off their stations with the same technology that we're using on ours meter. There was a momentum that came over time and there's still been a resistance to directly fund. We're getting more people are coming out of the woodwork now. We just uh, got some foundation funding to put three stations in down in the Paradise Valley. Uh, so the visibility is there. The problem with, uh, with building networks, meteorological data, soil moisture data, whatever, is that the general public is used to perceiving it as free. Well, no, it's not. It's paid for by taxpayer dollars. So the, there was, there's been a challenge. Uh, I think if we were on a direct fundraising route now uh, to continue to build out what we're calling our agrimet with the meter equipment, and if you'd like, we can go to the distinction between agrimet and otherwise. Now, with the deep, deep drought of this last year, a lot of people are paying attention now right up to the governor's office and we may get official state support it seems uh that's a, that's a may uh most importantly now we have momentum and then there's the question of that second project the new project uh through the corps of engineers that has totally transformed what we're doing and how we'll go about continuing what we do 
Yeah. Can you can you elaborate a little bit about that, about your collaboration there with the Army Corps of Engineers? Um, I know that they're they're working on is it a, a upper Missouri River watershed project. And how does that all connect with the Montana Mesonet? That's a, that's a very good question. It's the Upper Missouri River Basin Project. Uh, it was uh, it follows the major floods of 2011 and then again in 2019. Um, in 2011, it was record uh, flooding and record damage downstream, well, actually in Montana as well. In 2019, um, it's a matter of public record that the flooding compromised Strategic Command uh, south of Omaha. And Strategic Command is the uh, basis of our nuclear deterrence and defense. That got, the first flood got Congress riled up. The second flood said, really nailed it down and, and they came to the core and said, why did you miss these floods? And the core simply said, we don't have enough data. We don't, uh, it's the understanding of the, the need for the essential need for a coupled metrics of precipitation and soil moisture are, were very clear in their mind. They knew that they needed to have a dense network to do it. Um, and in this era of political division, the senators were not divided mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. They, they did their, the ag states, the, uh, Wyoming, Montana, North and South Dakota, and Nebraska, those are the states involved in the project. Um, they just said, yeah, this has got to get done. Mm-hmm. And so there was no hesitancy in Congress to uh, go ahead and fund it. Uh, in fact, with this new infrastructure bill that just passed, uh, there's additional funding in there uh, for mm-hmm. this continued expansion of the of the Corps of Engineers uh, stations. Um, it changed it, it it changed our technology it changed um the complexity we, we are compelled to work with now um the but it doesn't change the need for the agrimet what we're calling the meter base station uh the agrimet is uh every bit compliant with the guidelines of as american society of agriculture and biological engineers Matt Agrimet. Um, Agrimet in that it provides the necessary metrics to uh, support crop production. For that purpose, these uh, meter stations are, are, are quite extraordinary. Um, there's a new technology that can measure with low energy demand, can measure uh, the snow water equivalent, how much water is in the snow. Uh, using GPS signal. But the Corps of Engineers stations, uh, we have uh, what we think of as the conventional uh, weighing precipitation gauge. Uh, We have cameras on those stations. We have uh, snow depth sensors on the stations. Um, So it's it's an order of magnitude more expensive to build these stations. And of course, there's all the complexities that come with it, but we can also now report every five minutes. We have uh, a full local solar power system that allows us to do things we can't do with the agrimet. But also, because they're more expensive, they take longer to put in. I mean, they're more complex, they take longer to put in, and we can't put them as close together. So that's why Mm -hmm. the two systems, we now have two systems that we integrate. We call the meter-based system the agrimet and the Corps of Engineers system the hydromet. Can you go into a bit more detail about your setups, um, Mm -hmm. what you measure why you do it that way. You've mentioned um, trying to measure for, you know, meteorological, hydrological, terrestrial drought situations. Mm-hmm. You've talked about temperature, wind, speed, uh, relative humidity. Can you, yeah, give a bit more detail into 
just how everything is, is set up in those various weather stations. So the Agrimet stations, uh, the core of the Agrimet stations is the self-contained units of, of meter EM60Gs, and we're transferring over to the ZL6 now as that new technology is there. And uh, as some of the stations start to age out, that's the core uh, of the communication and uh, all the data collection and the brain, if you will, of the system. All the stations have the Atmos, the, the multi-environmental environmental metric. So we've, we're getting uh, solar radiation, uh, liquid precipitation, uh, wind speed and direction, uh, RH temperature, lightning counts, which we've found to be actually quite useful. And then every station has soil moisture probes. They're either four, three or four soil moisture probes. We started putting them in on imperial units, so four inches, eight inches, 20 inches, and 36, if we have the fourth one in there. Now, why the caveat on the fourth one? Well, because the BLM also wants to, they commissioned us to measure uh, vegetation response. So we use the NDVI sensor pairs to, um, as, to close that loop. So we can mm -hmm. see you now what's coming in, how it keeps to go, and what is the vegetation response relative to those other metrics. So that's the basic setup. Uh, that is the setup of our, uh, our meter systems our agrimet systems, and all the measurements are made. The environmental atmospheric measurements are all made at eight feet top of a post. Okay. So when we switch over to the Corps of Engineers station, uh, it is running off of Campbell Scientific Technology. So we can do a lot more with unique programming and more frequent metric uh, reporting and everything. The sensor configuration is our wind monitor is up at uh, 10 meters, 33 feet. And that's going to give us that synoptic view of the, of the wind. We have RHT, RH temp. Um, there's a snow depth sensor, their pyranometer, and we have the pluviometer, a rain precipitation gauge. Then we have a soil moisture pit. In that case, now we add a fifth sensor, and all stations do have five. These are metrics, so they're going 5, 10, 20, 50, and 100 centimeters at all stations, getting that extra re uh, resolution near the surface. And that's the core of the network. We have a over-spec'd uh, solar power system. I did that deliberately, so we have overhead moving forward. Pretty robust, but again, we needed that build-out. We want to put on other, other instruments. Uh, we're already talking, the state is asking us to consider and willing to fund, it appears, um, putting up uh, particulate matter. We want to add that. We want to add the net radiometer. Uh, we really want to know not just the water balance, but the energy balance. But So that's what we can do. That's what these new systems can provide us. I think that's pretty amazing. Just everything that can go into that, and and that there's more. Yeah. There's more that we can that we can yeah, look for absolutely. that we can track as as well. Okay. Another thing that's unique about the Montana Mesonet is the the way that you are marrying the field observations with laboratory characterizations. Can you describe that lab work and and kind of the value that it adds to the overall project? Absolutely. So at every uh, station, when we put in a soil moisture pit, we collect three controlled volume soil samples, uh, the two inch cylinder samples. Uh, and so at every depth we've got, uh, with the three samples, we bring them back to the lab. We run a water retention curve. You're determining how tightly the water is bound to the soil at any given level of volumetric water content. And that's necessary to find out the theoretical wilting point uh, at each level uh, of reading and to really help us understand uh, how much water uh, the soil can hold, how tightly it's bound, just what is the potential for plant withdrawal 
based on how tightly it's bound to the soil. And then you can invert that data. And what does that mean? That means that if you've, if you've got that pressure, you have a, you have a plot that shows um, the pressure at which water is bound to the soil at any given level of volumetric water content. So then as we move forward and a probe says it's 20% volumetric water, then you can say, well, let's see on that curve, 20% corresponds to this particular pressure. And then how close are you to the wilting point? So for irrigators, that might be the information they need to know, hey, when do I add water and maybe how much? Uh, these are future applications, but these are being worked on now uh, and also being done in conjunction with a researcher who's doing his PhD and asking questions for the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation. That's one part of the soil analysis, the water retention curve. And the other part of it is the particle size distribution. So we can really understand the water retention curve in the context of the soil texture. And again, just improve our understanding of how much of the water that goes in is available at any given time. At several points in our discussion, you've talked about um, spatial variability. I mean, we're dealing with a huge area. Yeah, uh, right. What is it? Almost 150,000 square miles. Um, you have a wide variety of, you know, biomes and uh, geography, rangeland in the high plains, moving up into forested, riverine, montane um, environments. How do you work in or deal with all of that kind of variability within your data set? Answering that question well starts with how we were required to start building out the system versus to how we, were, how we are now. Initially, uh, we had to be opportunistic. Who could fund what? And then given who would fund what and where they were, we would then place the station uh, in, at that site in an area that well, we felt best represented the site. So that opportunism has done well for us as the density has increased in the stations. When we started working with the BLM, what we did there is I took all of the lands under BLM jurisdiction and then I did an unsupervised classification. What does that mean? I, in, the, in the geographic information system, digital mapping, I took all their lands and I then put them in the context of three basic metrics that would give us a really good idea of some of the fundamental behavior of water across the jurisdictions. So I looked at historic water deficit. What's the gap between precipitation and evaporative demand? I looked at that data. I looked at uh, sand content in the soil, and that gave me a good idea of what the water holding capacity might be. And the third thing I looked at is uh, relative greenness. So how did the greenness change over time? By putting those three together, we were able to classify the BLM lands into seven different classes. And I then vetted that back through the BLM managers, the people that really know the land, and they said, yeah, that's credible. We believe it. And so then we were able to start to say, okay, we're going to place stations here and here and make sure that we're representative across the landscape of the BLM jurisdiction. Before the core project opened up and as we got more uh, latitude and we realized, well, we need to start being that much more deliberative uh, in where everything goes, we began to be able to go, well, we need to consider a different location. Do you have another place for us to work? So we're better, we can better represent where you are. And again, I put that information back into a digital system. With the Corps of Engineers project, they have constructed a grid of roughly 500 square miles per cell. That gives us a spacing uh, matrix. And also now we're working uh, with um, 
that much more resolved soil characteristic layers, we're able to go, okay, now in this cell, we want to represent this type of terrain, these types of soil mm -hmm. conditions. So I actually work now with a web-based mapping system where I can look and I say, oh, well, I'm supposed to, in this cell, we want to get emphasize these particular characteristics. So that's going to make sure that we're doing the best we can to represent those terrains. Even as we do that, it's also helping refine our understanding of where more aggregate systems need to be installed when we can once again add more stations to the system. We've matured to the point now where we can be that much more uh, deliberative in how we do it. How does this project impact weather prediction? It seems that you're trying to in some ways create an early warning system for various in Montana. Is that the future path of this project? It's not the end goal. It's one of the one of the objectives. The end goal is um, to provide uh, a range of the most relevant decision support tools uh, that can help for land management and whatever how you ever characterize that. Um, the the data now are directly influencing how we assess drought, and this is real time how we assess drought. So um, we have. Uh, Again, Kelsey, uh, the state climatologist, our assistant state climatologist, excuse me, Zach, the two of them are, have been sitting on the Governor's Drought and Water Supply Committee uh, brought in by the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation to help inform how we can better understand uh, the progress of drought. And also we've received funding from NOAA uh, and a program called NIDAS, the National Integrated Drought Information System. So uh, again, Kelsey and Zach uh, are being uh, are commissioned um, to work directly again with the governor's office and with uh, the regional drought analysts to um, understand how to refine the National Drought Monitor and improve its applications and uh, its reliability, frankly, uh, and also to improve the, the public's trust in the system. So, and this is where the data are being directly used right now. There's an integration of satellite data with the ground data, where when you take, if you've got the satellite data and you've got the, now the density of ground points that we have to work with, you can begin to interpolate between those points in a way that's much more reliable and has uh, higher, um, confidence intervals, uh, uh, you, you can trust it better. Uh, it's going to mm -hmm. be statistically more robust and your uncertainties are going way down. So um, that's one of the most important first applications. The Montana Grain Growers Association has taken a real interest in what we're doing. We've introduced the soil moisture continuous layer of the state and they're going, yeah, that's the data we needed. That's what we need. Now, how do we get it and how do we interpret it and how do we use it? That's where we are right now. We're learning more and more about the needs of the managers and the producers, private and public. And as we know those needs better, we can know, okay, we have these data, here are the needs. Now, how to best create a tool? We have data that we didn't have before. In general, um, soil moisture monitoring is just, it's nascent. The whole emergence of a soil moisture monitoring network for the, for the nation is emerging. We're one of the first states, if not the first, to have such a high density of deep soil moisture arrays. Typically, when other locales put their mesonet networks in, they uh, would put in one or two soil sensors because they kind of were asked to do it. And the understanding wasn't there, plain and simple. And it was meteorology, not hydrometeorology. <laughs> so, 
I, I, I think that's, that's amazing. And I, I guess with all of this going on, how do you feel that the Montana Mesonet project has gone so far? Has it gone as well as you hoped? Are there other things that you still are, are hoping to, to accomplish going forward? What are your feelings overall about how things have gone? We've got a very <laughs> robust system now. And there's so much more we want to do with it. And I want to do with it. Mm. We're going to get this build out and it's going to be a lot of pressure to get it done in a relatively short period of time. Okay, bring it on. I see where we're going and we're going to have an incredibly robust network within the next five years. What I dream of and where I want to see it go, even as we get the core in there and we maintain and sustain the aggregates uh, side of things, you got to recognize that Upper Missouri River Basin only goes to the Continental Divide, and that leaves a third of our state out of the out of the loop. I want to see that balance. I want to see us not forget the western part of the state. There's only so much we can do as we grow, but I really want to see us do more. I want to see us grow our relationships with Montana Extension Service, work through them and other channels to be able to fill in with more of the aggregate stations so we can get those critical metrics that we still need to get. And even as I say that, I think about all this this technology that's emerging. So maybe 10 or 15 years from now, all we'll be able to do is fly over with an airplane and drop all these little bots and they'll do all the measurements for us. I mean, they, we could get there. And I think that's, you know, it, it, it's fun to say that, but I think about who would have thought, who would have thought we would be able to uh, launch a rocket and uh, shoot William Shatner into the upper atmosphere and recover both capsules and they could <laughs> land on bare earth, you know? Um, so I think the technology is changing. That said, it's really gratifying to see what we've been able to accomplish so far. So along those lines, what are some of the positive impacts that you've seen uh, from the mesonet um, that you're particularly proud of? I think understanding soil water. I think that's one of the most important accomplishments we've, we've seen. Um, building out our own interfaces, building out our relationships across the state, across so many um, populations so many constituents and to see their curiosity and to really greet their buy-in. It's easy to ask people that even have the most skeptical thinking about climate change. It's easy to ask them, would you allow us to use a piece of your land to put the station in? Yeah, it's kind of a big footprint and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. They say, yeah, sure. So that's really gratifying. Uh, the number of hits that we get on the website to see how more and more people are relying on these data. I hear in the field, anecdotally, that's what they're doing with it, or it's whether to know what kind of coat to put on that day. And, and to have um, some of my favorite partners, uh, Kevin, such and such is going on. You know, I get these texts and, and to see that they're paying attention in that way, uh, that's really pretty hugely gratifying. Have you run into any problems or roadblocks um, along the way? And, and how did you get past those? We had challenges with uh, cellular communications. Cellular systems, first of all, were scant in Montana. Well, now they're really expanding. So there was like, how do I, can, I can't place a station there, I haven't got a signal. Oh, well, okay, fine. But that's what I started out with, now I can do it. And the technology has caught up with us both in terms of the modem technology that's in the devices. And um, we've, overcome, we've overcome that. Um, so things that were, those were technical hiccups. I think there was a stage where we didn't know how we were gonna sustain it. Because there, again, it goes back to that comment I made earlier that the perception is that these data are free. And how do you deal with that? It's resolving. 
now. But in part, it's because we've built something that has caught people's attention. And we do have paid subscribers. We do have paid partners that and carry the nut on, or at least contribute to, to uh, uh, carrying the nut on their station. So those things we've overcome, it was bold for us to go with one of these all-in-one type systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And boy, we caught a lot of flack for that. It's It's been, oh, you're not real because you don't have you know, tens of thousands of dollars in your equipment. Yeah. And it's really it goes back to, the, again, going back, when we consider the challenge of getting the data we needed 20, 30, and 50 years ago, we have to build out these monitoring stations as fast as possible. And when you consider Montana, uh, Montana is a, a very large landmass, very low population density. We have some of the greatest social needs in the country when it comes to taking care of people and dealing with um, really extraordinary social problems. Uh, I am fine that the legislature hasn't given us any money. And I come to this from a business background anyways, where I ran my own business and I believe in an entrepreneurial spirit. But that said, you know, we had a limited budget. And so why did we go with an all-in-one system right up front? because we did some critical comparisons. We looked very carefully at these all-in-one systems. We found out the accuracy and the precision of these systems would give us all the metrics we needed reliably to do the agricultural calculations and to do to provide the weather service with some essentially data that was necessary to fill gaps. And we looked at the costs and we said, well, yeah, this makes sense. We could do a lot fast. I can put an agronomic station in by myself in about six hours. I put three mm-hmm. in in September uh, in one week. And it was like, you get them out there. They're very low maintenance. And, and it's just like, you know, you go out, you do your firmware updates, and it's just, it's manageable. For uh, I was the one-man sh- one show for a while. The point being that when it came to talk with individuals that were wanting to build out their own systems, it really does matter how much money you have in the context of the state you're working in. And I make no apologies. Different technologies for different reasons. We needed the data a long time ago. We can't wait until we have the perfect budget. And really, there's no sacrifice being made there. You're dealing with, what is it, over 100 stations all throughout mm-hmm. Montana. How do you deal with the with the general upkeep? Um, I, I, that could be, a, you know, potentially a logistical nightmare. It's getting more complicated, of course, with an increasing stations. But it's still, when you look at the agrimet in particular, um, it's easy to monitor the systems. I've worked with my programmer to have uh, data feeds that I can uh, call up on my screen um, so I have different, every, several different ways when I log in each day, I can look and there's a quick panel that says uh, health, red or green. Um, mm-hmm. And then I can start digging in. So that part, you, you get a pretty good early warning. And then on a pretty regular basis, we go through and comb and just do a visual of all the metrics through the web-based uh, service. You can see what's going on. And when you get out there in the field, it's not complicated uh, to do the updates. And most critically, because of the simplicity of the system, I can call somebody and say, hey, would you go out and push the reset? I think it just got hung up. Mm-hmm. No problem. We had uh, one of our older loggers, uh, end of life, I think, was uh, was why it failed, which is reasonable. That's been out there for five years in some one of the more extreme environments. And all I had to do was send him a new logger, period. He went out, slipped a couple zip ties, plugged 
you know, and this guy is a range tech. It was just easy to get it done. Uh, we had one of the Atmos units go out. I sent it off to our partner at Crow Agency. He was able to put the Atmos up and get it lined up and leveled and plug it back in. So this is that's critical to being able to maintain all those stations. Um, because it's they're just not complicated. And I, I it's not uncommon at all for me to call somebody and say, hey, when you get a chance or uh, could you check it out? Another important part of it is the partnership we have with the Montana Department of Ag. We just help each other. Any other um, details you'd like to, to add about the, the future of the Montana Mesonet project? Now it's about developing the both the physical infrastructure and expanding the IT infrastructure. So we really were going to a major leap in, in our growth. So um, it's really, a, and then integrating that with the application development and working with our partners. So it's a new day. It's a new mm -hmm. level of sophistication that's gonna be demanded of all of us, a new level of basic planning, which is kind of a nice problem to have that uh, we've arrived at this point. And as I consider the next couple of decades of my life, uh, I think about what I want this to look like, what kind of legacy I want to be behind. Great. Um, where can folks in our audience, if they want to learn more about the Montana Mesonet, where can they go to find out more information about that? Uh, Montana Climate Office website. The address is climate.umt. Dot edu. And you'll see our homepage with launching pad for the, uh, the launch point for the Mesonet data. Uh, we have a drought monitor that is the product of the work being done to improve um, the national drought monitor into some more spatially explicit monitoring. I encourage folks to go check that out. And there's other resources on that page as well. As we think about the challenges of building and sustaining these systems, how do we keep paying for them? Whose data is this? And how do we make best use of the data? We have made a choice to make our data public. We're not trying to monetize it. I mean, we're being funded in part by the BLM, that's public domain data. But we've also made that we decided that, you know, we could try to protect the data, we could try to put up walls, or we could try to prevent scraping. You know, a lot of people spend a lot more time, a lot of time doing this, and they're smarter than we are. Uh, we want the public to benefit from all this effort. And the headache of trying to monetize is I, I we just said, you know, it's it just, we're not going to go there. We are a public service agency. And um, yes, we all have challenges in figuring out how to pay for the stuff, but it's a, it's a discussion that's an essential discussion. And I hope that it's a discussion that all the folks involved in Mesonet build-outs can continue to have constructively as we figure out really how to put these data to, to the best use for the public interest. All right, our time's up for today. Thank you again, Kevin. Uh, we do really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. And it's definitely been a, a very interesting uh, conversation here. Um, if you in the audience have any questions about this topic or want to hear more, feel free to contact us at metergroup.com or reach out to us on Twitter at meter underscore ENV. And you can also view the full transcript from today in the podcast description. So that's all for now. Stay safe. And we'll catch you next time on We Measure the World. <laughs>